So welcome, Jamie, to the Unpacking Depression podcast. I'm your host, Eugenia McGuire. I'm a social worker, and I decided to do this podcast as part of a a practicum project, um, wanting to learn more about depression and wanting to have conversations with people in order to share, unpack, learn more, hear people's stories, create a a format and a place for people to share and um, hopefully that's mutually mutually beneficial and I've had uh, numerous conversations now with folks who have lived experience or um, have some things to share about depression and I've learned quite a bit actually. I originally started this with the idea of um, that my nervous system was not, did not have tendencies for depression so much. Um, Not that I don't have other ways of dealing with things or neuroses and all of that. But then when I started to talk to people, I started to remember things and was like, huh, I have, I have experienced this. So my story is changing, but it's still not kind of my primary go-to place. My primary go-to for the, for my nervous system would be the alarm and sort of kind of take charge, seize control of the situation, kind of get it done and scramble and overwork and that kind of thing as opposed to more like the shutdown and withdraw sort of reaction when things are overwhelming. So um, yeah, that's kind of my story and where I'm coming from with all this. So um, you saw my poster circulating about and what what attracted you to to that wanting to, to speak about depression? Um, I have always tried to be just very open and um, coming from a childhood where communication was not a thing um, and everything was just not spoken about, I think hurt me um, a lot. And, uh, you know, I could have had a different outcome, you know, if I had been able to talk about things and, um, you know, get that support early on. So I think it's really important for us to talk about it now about anything that's going on, like mental health wise, um, versus any other sort of discrimination or um, taboo subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So when you were a child, basically, like, there wasn't this room for emotional expression, there was this like, kind of pushing down on that. And so now you're like, by kind of combating that by being very open about everything. Yes. Yeah. I, I had to spend a lot of time figuring out um, emotions mm-hmm. and what they, I, I'm still learning, like what they feel like physically for me um, because I just spent so much time shoving them down all the time and just not paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that all that all makes sense. Um, just kind of off the hop. So, is there anything else you want to add in terms of just like an introduction, introducing yourself, just generally, and and all of that? I mean, it does. It doesn't matter, and it does. <laughs> sure. No, I can. Uh, so, my name is Jamie. My pronouns are they them. Uh, I have suffered. Uh, I don't want to say suffered. Um, I have experienced depression. Uh, the majority of my life. Uh, In hindsight, I think looking back, starting around 10 years old or so. um, And it's a constant companion for me. Sometimes I go into a deeper depression. Sometimes I'm just at my baseline depression. 
Okay, so you kind of feel like it's literally always there no matter what and has been since you were 10. Yes. Okay, is is there, if you were to, let's say, come out of it, would, like, do you have a sense of even what that would look like if that's not reality at all and hasn't been for such a long time? No, I have literally no idea. Um, for me, depression manifests as uh, a real lack of energy. Mm. Um, I'm, you know, old school, they would say like high functioning depressive, where, you know, I can go to work, um, very rarely end up like taking time off because of my depression. Um, but day to day, depending on where I'm at, I might go to work, come home and do absolutely nothing but lie on the couch because I just don't have the energy to do anything else. Mm -hmm. um, taking that away, whew, I have no idea. I feel like it would be akin to somebody who needs glasses, um, getting their glasses for the first time and noticing the leaves on the trees, you know, and they're not just green blobs. Who knows what it would be like? Hmm, that's interesting. Is that something that you wish you could experience? Or is there like kind of this acceptance of this is my journey as is? Um, it's, I've definitely accepted it. I, I don't think depression will ever leave me. Uh, I think it's just part of how I'm wired. Um, do I wish I could experience life without depression? Yes, uh, that would be very interesting. Uh, and while I'm not... Sorry, I, um, well, I believe that I'm going to have depression my whole life. That doesn't mean I'm um, completely in that belief, you know, like something could happen. Um, I know, I, I know people who have um, gone to Peru and done the ayahuasca and uh, it's been life-changing for them. So, you know, Something could happen for sure, um, but as medicine and therapy and whatnot currently are, I won't, um, I, I'll have depression for, for the length of it. Mm, okay, okay. Um, so you're talking about it manifests for you as low energy. That was kind of the, that's kind of one of my questions. I have like all these questions <laughs> I'm trying to sort out. Um, and when I did my kind of when I had my little wake up moment within the last couple of weeks here where I was like, oh, I think I was depressed when I was 19. It was my first year um, in university. And it wasn't the first year that I'd lived away from home. Like I'd already been moved out for two whole years or more, maybe two and a half years. Um, but I think maybe it was the first time that I really had this opportunity to kind of crash where I didn't have the like kind of propulsion of, you know, trying to do a million things. And then there was kind of this opportunity where I had these student student funding and like my basic needs were, the, there was like this basic need safety kind of thing. So I did, I think maybe take the opportunity to crash and that's what it manifested. I, at the time I just called it a sleeping problem. And then it took me all this time to, <laughs> to look back and remember that I'd labeled it that way. And I was like, well, I think maybe that was depression, but I'm trying to parse out what is fatigue, what is depression and is fatigue just one symptom of many symptoms of depression. Um, 
or what is it just like a semantics issue with people where some people say I have depression but it's fatigue or is there more to it for you I think that's a really hard question um for me it definitely uh vacillates sort of between just depression or no actually you're just an incredibly lazy person which for the most part is generally what depression tells people. <laughs> so it's really hard to really know what, which it is. Um, and, and then there's all sorts of other reasons what, you know, um, you know, am I anemic? Am I, you know, there's so many reasons that you could just be low energy, yeah. but for myself, um, with all everything that goes with it, you know, the dark thoughts and, and that sort of thing. I have those as well. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's how you know to label it depression. Cause there are people who are literally just like fatigued, which I've also experienced that too, mm-hmm. where it was like actually basically an iron deficiency. And then it, it got better when I started taking iron supplements and that sort of thing. But um, yeah. Okay. Right. No, I guess to clarify, um, at this point in my life, it's mostly the low energy. Um, but you know, when I was younger, it was I, I could visualize the depression in my head as um, to me, it looked like a, a plexiglass pane, and on the other side of it were like swirling ghosts of blackness that were just hurling terrible, terrible things at me. Um, you know, you're worthless. They're just saying that to get you to go away or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I could never quite hear them, but I knew what they were saying. So that was sort of like the first, um, visual manifestation of depression for me. And this was back back when you were 10 then? Uh, that I would say I was able to figure it out, um, that I think in my twenties, probably, Um, When I was 10, I had no idea what was going on. Um, It wasn't until probably when I was a teenager and all that, you know, oh, teenagers are all depressed. And um, I was a teenager right when sort of the phenomenon of cutting came into um, sort of popular understanding. And uh, so that, you know, once I was at that age, it was sort of, putting some things together for myself (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so does it does it ever go into an alarm response as well like do you kind of do you ever pendulum swing like I'm also trying I'm also kind of exploring the relationship between alarm and depression in terms of like the nervous system that like revs us up moves us to caution to try to address the underlying issues of like, well, from my perspective, primarily attachment needs, right? It's all kind of like mostly about relationships. Um, and then, then we can also have this kind of defensive, like vasovagal kind of response that's like defensive that just shuts it all down and kind of pendulum swings from that like hyper aroused state. I guess most people just call it anxiety and and then into like the like full-blown like depressive state Mm -hmm. um I have anxiety as well 
Um, and I used to think that depression was the thing that, you know, triggered everything in my mental health. Um, but looking back on it, um, I really think I've had anxiety my entire life. My mom likes to tell the stories of, you know, I wouldn't let her go uh, when I was a baby, you know, even when she was going to the washroom, I was on the other side of the door, just no, come back. So I feel like that is probably, um, was anxiety. It was that fear of being left alone or left behind. Um, and I just never, never had the words for it. You know, I was always a very shy child, terrified of being judged, terrified of doing the wrong thing. Um, and that's, uh, really anxiety. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how you see it. I mean, like the disorder language is like kind of pervasive in our culture and that, but I definitely look at it as like your brain, like a child's brain who's, you know, in that state, you know, that's not a broken brain. That's a brain that's trying to get their fundamental need for attachment met. Right. Yes. And then the conditions were such that, you know, unfortunately, you know, you couldn't be brought to rest. Um, that would be ideally the optimal state <laughs> for, you know, parent to bring their child into a state of rest, like to assure them like, Oh, you know, I'd never leave you. I'm here kind of thing to to be bigger than right like mm -hmm. you know come here little insecure one right and <laughs> bring them into rest so um have you kind of gone down that path and thought about that stuff yes I think that there's um you know like natural pieces of a person's personality uh right that are just innate when you're born um but how your environment reacts to those um, might turn them into, you know, a syndrome or uh, that sort of thing. So I, I feel like I was naturally an anxious child, but because of the family style I was brought up in, uh, it was not seen, it was not, um, taken care of at all so uh and I think that for especially for somebody who's anxious it just built and built and built and built yeah yeah absolutely so that I know that can be kind of tough to to like look at because it kind of it can kind of feel like maybe blaming like like mm -hmm. oh, I'm I'm blaming my parents and you know like now that you kind of have these realizations, how does that affect your relationships? Like, have you been able to kind of like make peace with that or talk through yes. that? Or? Um, I'm definitely at peace with, you know, I, now I know my parents were doing the best they could with what they had um, as resources or understandings at their disposal at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> my mom had me when she was 21, I think, and I am now almost 40 and still have no idea what I would do to raise a child and feel completely like at a loss. So like props to her, like first and foremost, just she did it. 
she did it with three kids, you know, low income family, uh, not a great home life uh, in terms of, you know, there was some abuse and alcoholism uh, going on. And uh, so she did everything she could, (laughs) everything she knew how to do. And I do know that there were times, um, especially like when I was a teenager, and it all sort of like came up. Um, and I, you know, I asked her recently, you know, why didn't I get therapy? Why didn't, you know, why didn't something happen? And she just said that she was not in a place where she could handle that. It was, it was just too much for her. So uh, like we do in our family, she pushed it down and we didn't talk about it anymore. Um, so, I definitely see how it could come across as sounding like blame, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I think each generation tries to be better than the last and you just do what you can do. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally don't see it as blame anyway, because I see it as bigger than that because Mm -hmm. cultural rituals are supposed to provide the scripts and information for parents to not have to know what to do. And like, of course, you know, it's pretty much like babies raising babies. (laughs) I was in the same situation. My mom was 18 when she had me and she turned 19 a month later. And it's just like, how did you, yeah, it would have been been an absolute disaster if I'd had a child at that age as well. Absolute disaster. But that's because there is no culture, right? There's not like an, an entire tribe of people being like, and this is how we do this. And this is how we do that. And on you know, Saturdays we do this and, you know, this is how we raise the children and everybody's helping and all of that stuff. So it's, it's nobody's fault, but it definitely takes some courage to look at, you know, why did this come to be? Because some people's story is like literally just, you know, that they have a brain chemistry thing and that's just the way that it is. It has nothing to do with their environment or anything like that. And like, that's, that's an interesting story to have because it, it, to me, it just like, it can't be true, right? Because we're Mm. so impacted by attachment and the relationships that we have and the quality of those relationships and the nature of them and, and all of that, that like, it just couldn't not influence you in a tremendously powerful way. Right. So, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, would to look at that would kind of threaten the connection because then you might become upset with your parents or something (laughs) it's like this weird dance of like how do I look at like look at the truth and the cold hard light of day but also not yeah not break the relationships that you know if you still want to maintain those relationships and and all of that yeah and uh I'll say like it's it's taken a very long time for my mom and I to even have that conversation uh, like, in fact, it happened like three weeks ago. (laughs) And it was the first time we ever had a conversation, maybe more like two months ago or so, but it was the first time we've ever had a conversation about something real, like childhood and feelings and that sort of thing. And I think it was a bit cathartic for, for myself. And, um, I think for her as well, because, you know, as, as such a young mom, she, and I, I'm positing that she also has anxiety 
but um, you know, she she told me that uh, when she was raising us, she just felt that um, how we were were a representation of her. So if we weren't perfect, there was something wrong with her. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's interesting that she's yeah. able to articulate that. Yeah, and she oh. felt, still feels like really bad about that. Um, it was an emotional time when she told me that. Wow, I think that is like at some level embedded in the psyche of most Western parents. I, I I'm not going to say every parent because I don't want to. In my mind, I have this idea of like, yeah, that Western the Western culture and ways of being are not normal. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that there, are, there are other ways of being like in, you know, tribal societies, attachment based cultures and that. So like the Western psyche, I feel like that is kind of like what parents feel, but they're not aware of it, but they're mm -hmm. trying to mold their children into like, like, don't embarrass me, be good in the store. Don't cry. It, it'll make yeah. me look like a bad <laughs> parent. And so just kind of like tuck it in and be, tidy and neat and messiness is not good mm -hmm. and I think for our family it also extended to the accomplishments you know not just like be good but also be really good <laughs> perform yeah <laughs> which is like so much pressure yeah it's interesting I don't know if you've ever heard of those um experiments I guess like research that was done with the mothers whose children ask like these are toddlers whose the toddlers are asking to be picked up have you heard of this research um I think maybe in conjunction with research about um like eye contact and that sort of like in infants oh okay okay yeah um so, so yeah I think a little bit <laughs> oh, okay so basically like the in a nutshell it's that the mothers of the toddlers who um the mothers who are overly generous with their um with picking up the toddlers right like when the toddlers ask to be picked up or they will like provide kind of get there first and provide as much you know of that sort of nurturance um those children are preoccupied with emergence where they are naturally spring forth into this, like me do it. And it's the mothers who are trying to push their children into independence prematurely without providing it. It's like this kind of paradoxical thing, right? You're trying to create independence by pushing um, the children to be independent from a very young age. And then they become preoccupied with, um, you know, clinging and all of that. Right. So mm -hmm because they never felt safe in order to like exactly. practice <laughs> well exactly and like that emergence springs forth from a place of feeling satiated right mm -hmm. it's like if a child is starving they're just going to be like you know yeah I don't know no never mind that's not a good analogy but <laughs> but just in terms of what you're saying like the performance like if if you actually want someone to genuinely be their best self and perform they have to feel the like that's too much pressure but mm -hmm. if they feel like they're unconditionally loved then they can just blossom into like the most amazing version of themselves yeah, yeah which would ultimately sure. accomplish the like performance thing but it's <laughs> <laughs> right it's just a hard thing to get uh, to 
to wrap somebody's head around for sure. But I look at some of the people uh, I know who are raising children now. And I think it's, I think partially in the queer community also, it's a little bit more um, okay to to buck the trends or, or, you know, bucks society's expectations. Uh, And so like I have friends who are raising their children with such emotional intelligence that you just look at them and you're like, the adult you're going to be. Yeah, no, I definitely see a lot of that too, where I'm just like, how did, what did you do in a previous life? (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah. And I wonder too, like, what are they going to be? And I also just think like, they could be like the most amazing you know, they could do the most amazing things. And also they may not do anything. They may just be like the most well-balanced, you know, I'm thinking of like those Buddhist stories of like the fairy, like the person who like carries people across the river and stuff. Like you don't need to be this. Yeah, like, you people don't... who are just generally happy with being. <laughs> yes, yes. You don't, not, the not, not needing to accomplish all of these great accolades and whatever, but just to like be present and happy and grounded and human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to talk, uh, you had mentioned talking about depression and anxiety as like a pendulum. And uh, I'd love to talk more about that because uh, for me, it's a simultaneous mm. um, experience, mm. <laughs> which is exhausting and uh, makes me think about, I don't know if you've seen the dinosaur comics that talk about uh, uh, depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Well, I think maybe I've seen a little bit of those like on Facebook, just Mm -hmm. like kind of in passing, like as memes or something. Yeah. And they'll have like little comics, um, like, uh, oh, something like anxiety says you have to be perfect or, or anxiety says everybody's looking at you. Depression says, and they all hate you. (laughs) So it's that sort of like simultaneous, um, experience is what, I, I experience for sure. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So is, is it the right analogy to think of it almost as like a gas pedal and a brakes at the same time? Like the anxiety is like alarming and it's like revving and then the depression is like pushing down and like shutting down. No. no? Um, if we're using a gas pedal, uh, it would be two gas pedals being pressed at the same time. One for depression, one for anxiety. They'll, um, uh, feed each other a lot. And so if my anxiety is really bad, maybe I'll get overwhelmed and just go to bed and just lie there because I can't do anything. And, you know, it's stupid to even try. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of the cycle that I get. Um, I've, (laughs) I've worked a lot in the past few years to, um, personify my depression and anxiety so and it's been very helpful actually um in which I don't see them as innate within me but I see them as like my little sidekicks yes depersonalizing them yeah and um and so I can uh you know I've always been able to do that sort of with anxiety you know I've I'm at the point where I can be like, oh, that's just my anxiety. They're just weird. <laughs> um, but I had never done that with uh, my depression until a therapist uh, 
asked me to. And it took me a really long time to try and like separate that. But now, um, now I can. And getting back to the point, like uh, when I'm experiencing it, it will be like depression is, you know, this big, dark oil blob um, that grows up behind me and like looms over me. And then anxiety is just this little like pink ball that's, you know, going everywhere at once. And um, sometimes it gets, you know, stuck in the depression. Sometimes it's leading us. Sometimes it's, you know, following us, um, stuck in the little like trail of depression tr drudgery. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time trying to visualize <laughs> what things look like. Have you ever... Um written something like stories poems or like used art to portray this or like is there some sort of way you've been able to portray it like externally uh no I, I spend a lot of time like thinking about what they might look like and have also considered you know once I get uh I'm not an artist <laughs> so get getting somebody who can maybe uh like uh, capture what I might verbalize them as maybe even getting them as like tattoos oh um, that would be cool yeah so so yeah I've never it, it's all just internal right now it's just me sort of navel gazing <laughs> yeah yeah you've got this kind of like visuals in your head of mm -hmm. yeah it'd be cool to like get them out of your head and get them like I'm almost like like as you were talking, I was like picturing animations of it, and I and I wish I could get what's inside my head out too, but I don't have any, like I don't have a lot of skills to do that other than yeah. <laughs> writing. <laughs> but is there is there just the two characters, or is there more? No, there's just two. In the crew. <laughs> <laughs> no, just two. Um, you know, who knows as I grow and, and learn more about myself, maybe I'll, you know, personify some other uh, little characters, but yeah, for now, like anxiety was an easy one for me. Um, and depression was really, really hard, even though like um, I had named it uh, even back when probably in my twenties, um, while it was still like innate with it within me it was also called David so I don't know why <laughs> interesting interesting yeah yeah so yeah I'm curious about that like why David like is it the sort of mundane of that like the mundanity of that name or like yeah it's interesting That's a really good question um it wasn't a sort of purposeful decision. Mm. Uh, when it comes to me naming things, I generally just sort of like let my mind wander and then something will like, you know, oh, I'll try that, wait a second. And then like, think about it for a while. Is this a David? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely David. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I just sort of like let it reveal itself to me. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you just sort of intuited it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause when I think of David, it's just sort of like this, like really super mundane name. It's like, mm -hmm. if you were in a group of people, they'd like, there'd be David would just sort of be there. He wouldn't just, he wouldn't be like the main event. Um, right. <laughs> he'd, just, he'd just sort of be there and like, maybe he just won't go away. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's just tagging along. (laughs) (laughs) Tag along, David. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. I love that. Hmm. That'd be really interesting if you did get a tattoo. I'd love to to see that and like how how the artist is able to. Yeah. Even with the like painting, they could really kind of like something with that that would be really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the zigging, it's, um, I don't know if you remember the, the character, the video game, uh, Kirby. Vaguely, vaguely. It's this like little pink bubble. Yes. Um, and it can like inhale to make itself larger or float mm-hmm. or things. It, it vaguely resembles that. Okay. Uh, my anxiety, except it's spiky. <laughs> it, it's not like a soft little bubble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So when you were a teenager and going through all this and, you know, your, your parents, your mom, what have you, didn't really like know anything or think anything or just like, whatever that is, let's just ignore it. Was there anyone else who like picked up on the fact that you were struggling? Like did, did teachers notice any adults, anything like that? Or were you just kind of like completely alone? Um, I think you know, there were some teachers that knew. Uh, I had a group of friends that uh, was unhealthy and uh, sort of a, a, a feeling of competitiveness, mm. you know, like who can be the most fucked up? <laughs> and, um, and we just in general, and I in general was not in a good place, you know, like I was drinking in junior high. Um, a lot um my mom likes to say that I think it was like around 15 16 she wasn't sure that we would both survive that (laughs) um I was just in an awful place I uh hated everything um couldn't understand what was going on around me um and it came out in sort of like you know the typical teenage no one understands me sort of vibes so I think uh you know I never vocalized how bad it was inside my head um it just came out in you know I wore punk clothing (laughs) and uh you know cut myself um which most people didn't know except that little group of friends um eventually that group of friends um, decided I was no longer their friend and they ousted me to our school counselor uh, as a cutter. And that's how it got back to my parents. Uh, And, you know, they, my father at the time demanded to see it. Uh, And then I was brought to the doctor and it was never spoken of again. (laughs) That's the first time I was on antidepressants. So what did the doctor say or do? Um, I just remember him asking like a few questions. Um, I have really bad memory. I, I, I think uh, I, I've tuned them, some things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't recall anything being taken seriously. I was never offered you know, like therapy. I don't know if that was suggested to my parents. It was just, you know, here's some Zoloft. Come back in two weeks and we'll re, or no, like six weeks and we'll, you know, check in. Wow. So did, how did you react to that? 
did you want to take these pills and um yeah uh i think there was you know the hope that they might help and also uh in in the frame of that com- competitiveness you know like proof like look i am on antidepressants i am diagnosed <laughs> sort of thing um Unfortunately, I don't recall Zoloft helping me very much. Um, just wasn't a, a good fit. Uh, but I think I stayed on it for like a year or so. And I don't remember how I came off it. I think I just like got bored and nothing else was ever offered to me. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how that worked. <laughs> did How did you manage, like, did you just, did you graduate from high school and like just keep kind of plugging along somehow? Yeah, so you know that's where um, my my anxiety uh, worked um, because I it also made me an extreme perfectionist. Uh, so I always, you know, did fairly well in school if I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times I didn't, but I you know still passed, sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I, I did graduate and. Yeah, then just sort of, <laughs> I took a year off to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, that turned into about 17 years. <laughs> um, and in that time, I was just, you know, working and getting my own place and that sort of thing, starting to become more introspective, starting to get friends who talked about things like this. Um, and then eventually uh, coming into the amazing queer community that uh, we're a part of now. And, um, and I think that opens up a lot of doors into the thinking. Um, everybody is just really open to figuring out the puzzle that is them. And it sort of gives you license to do the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what types of jobs did you do in that 17 year period? Um, So I did a little bit at a pizza shop. Um, I worked a couple of years at Canadian Tire. Um, And then I worked about eight years at a construction uh, company. And it was uh, like a gravel pit, sort of like picture Fred Flintstone um, sort of work. And I was um, always sort of like in the administrative part of it. So like I was a way scale operator. I was the person writing the tickets for the trucks to go take their materials wherever they were going. Um, And then sort of like, you know, built my way up uh, in that organization to sort of like an office manager uh, and looking after like three different gravel pits. Um, and in that time, I was, I was isolated, I would say. I, I would work really long hours um, because it's construction. Uh, and then I would get two to three months off in the winter. And if I wasn't out traveling, I was in a really dark little basement suite uh, binging on ER <laughs> uh, in my show. couch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, it wasn't healthy at all. Um, but it was just what my life was. I didn't know 
what else to do sort of thing. Um, and then I got very unceremoniously fired from that job and had to sort of like make a pivot um, and, and figure out what to do after that. Um, and that's when I started working at Nate, um, which I think was a good environment for me because it's all about, you know, sort of self-improvement. It's going to school, it's uh, possibilities and, and that sort of thing. And at that same time, aging and getting uh, a new group of friends uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I'm not very good at making friends myself. I'm really introverted and, you know, I'm perfectly content to be my, by myself. But, you know, that also gets very isolating and is not necessarily a good thing for me. So I tend to um, let my siblings make friends and then I just join them. <laughs> and that's how I met the group of friends that I'm with now. <laughs> okay. um, and, and yeah, so sort of like from the gravel pit period, I started getting a little bit more introspective, but not really... I don't want to say woke, but like, um, <laughs> you know, conscious, I guess. Um, and yeah, I spent 10 years at Canadian Tire, or not at Canadian Tire, 10 years at Nate. And in that time, I just, I, I transformed a lot. You know, I went to therapy. I was on drugs that did better things for me. Uh, I'm still on um, a number of drugs that I take regularly just to sort of keep me at my baseline um, and really started sort of like that, that introversion uh, or introspection, sorry. And um, also the sort of, you know what, it's okay to be who I am and just accepting that, you know, this is just what my life is and figure out how to make it work for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like in your book, autobiography, you have to have a chapter that's like the gravel pit period. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I transformed pretty, pretty big during those years too. I, uh, uh, you know, sort of came into my own and um, opened up more about like my queerness and started like acting on um, being bisexual and um, and also standing up for myself a little bit more. In that period, I had one close friend, um, but we were friends of like sort of convenience. I was there for them to like spew all their negative negativity at, um, and she was there for me so that I wasn't alone. And I started to realize, you know, like I could do better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. So then what, um, you said there was like 17 years and then something changed, like you went back to school or something, didn't you? Or I did in, um, 2015. Uh, so when I was working at Nate, uh, I got really, really involved in sort of the queer advocacy at Nate and, um, got involved with like that group, uh, of staff members. And, uh, it really, it was like one of those pivotal times um, where we were celebrating a pride week 
um, and something, you know, just wasn't handled well in terms of, you know, discrimination. Um, and, you know, nothing was, it wasn't awful. It was just sort of like, that could be handled better. And then I just had the thought, you know, I could be the person that makes that better. Um, and so I started thinking about sort of, um, equity, diversity, inclusion sort of things. Um, but (laughs) I was also, you know, an administrative assistant, uh, so I didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I sort of looked at Nate and was like, okay, well, what could Nate do for me? And they pay for classes, um, at Nate, um, if you're a staff member. So I was like, okay, what's the closest thing to what I'm thinking of that Nate offers? And that was human resources. So I, it took me four and a half years, um, and I got my human resources management diploma. Um, and in that time, I also took a lot of courses on, um, you know, EDI leadership and facilitation, um, and just sort of like picking and choosing these little things that would like help me grow into sort of like a professional advocate sort of role. Mm-hmm. So you were still working there full time and trying to do this coursework kind of part time and yes, yeah, I was. And uh, so I just graduated last year uh, in June. And um, was it last year? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Time. (laughs) Um, I I think it was last year. Yeah. Um, And yeah. And and so then I was sort of, you know, on to the the next step. Um, My time, my job at Nate was not fulfilling. Uh, You know, it was fine. Uh, I enjoyed some of what I did, but I also never got to move anywhere in those 10 years. Yeah, um, kind of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was not given the opportunity to grow at Nate. So I, you know, had to leave it. Um, and that, you know, took me to February of this year. And uh, I got a job at a not-for-profit organization who works with folks who have disability-based barriers to employment. And I work with them to help them find jobs. So it's really sort of like another level of um, that diversity and inclusion um, work. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So in light of like your struggles with fatigue and all of that, like how was that four and a half year period of trying to do both those things at once it was hard um I I would only take like two night classes um each semester uh or if it was like a condensed um semester I would take one class that happened twice a week uh I I knew people who did way more than that like some of my classmates were taking four or five classes while working full-time I knew I could not do that um during my my studies I just you know I I worked I went to class I worked I did my chores or errands at home I worked I went to class I worked and then I studied and I studied and I studied and then I did laundry on Sundays (laughs) and that was basically my life for uh for a good you know four and a half five years wow um and actually when that ended uh I I had um 
the deepest depression uh, of my life. Uh, and I don't know if it was because I was able to relax or like, you know, I didn't have to go, go, go. Or if it was, you know, I graduated and my life was still exactly the same. Um, maybe like a combination of it. But um, it was the first time in my life I actually took uh, two days off of work so that I could just be depressed. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, uh, you know, it was, it was noticeable, like my boss noticed and, you know, was asking me about it. Fortunately, she was an amazing boss and I was able to just like outright say, yeah, I'm, I'm having a really hard time. I'm super depressed and I'm literally, it was great working from home because I would work during the day. And then at lunch, I would go to my bedroom and I would just lie in bed for 45 minutes and then I would come back. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was really, really hard, but you know, you just give yourself that time and you say like, okay, this is what I can accomplish. I can get out of bed and usually brush my teeth. And you just have to, you know, be okay with that. Um, and in other ways too, um, like as I came out of that depression, I, I had thoughts about maybe opening up my own um, business, like consulting business and doing that while I was also working at Nate full time and using that to sort of like make my way into the EDI world. Um, but I was also cognizant that I could not do as much as what some other people do who have, you know, their full-time jobs and their side gigs. I had to be really um, strategic and intentional about where my time would be spent. Um, that's on hold now that I've got the new job. Um, but yeah, I just, I, it's always a matter of not comparing yourself to what everyone else is accomplishing or doing mm -hmm. is a matter of what can I accomplish and stay at my baseline. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's been kind of your way of managing and, and your lesson to learn and live out is just that this is what you can do and to honor that and not yeah. plan more than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and it's hard because like I said, with like depression, you know, like, am I depressed or am I just lazy? Now it's sort of like, am I depressed or am I just incredibly introverted? <laughs> um, so there's different levels of it, but um, I really just sort of, it makes you, like I said, intentional about like, who am I spending my time with? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, filling my cup? Um, and you know, what else am I doing? Uh, I'm, I live a fairly small life, you know, like I, I am at home. I, I live on my own. I, you know, garden and, you know, I don't go out a whole lot. Um, but that's what works for me. And the friendships I do have are, incredibly deep and wonderful and you can just sit down and sort of have a conversation like this for a few hours and um yeah and then you know we see each other less but it's always really meaningful when we are together mm -hmm. yeah beautiful so when you went into the really you said you went into the most depressed 
state you've ever been in when once you finished your program was there was it was the symptom just that you were really fatigued and tired or was there more to it like did did the kind of like bombardment of thoughts like negative thoughts and all that kind of stuff come with it as well um no there wasn't an increase in negative thoughts or anything everything was just hard everything was hard and felt meaningless you know like what's even the point of getting out of bed I'm just going to be in it again in 12 hours you know like um it, it really it was messing with my head like the my motivation went away my um desire to do anything just went away like um, I've, and I've never had an experience like that. Usually I, I've been able to, you know, continue to distract myself with like TV or something like that. But in this case, it was just like, what's the point? <laughs> um, so it was, yeah, it was really long fight. Um, and because I'm visual, I, uh, I visualized it as sort of, um, being like in a grave, and having to like claw your way up. And, you know, sometimes you caught a few inches. Sometimes there was a mudslide and you're back down at the bottom. Um, but you just have to keep trying to do a little bit more, get um, sort of recognizing, okay, I'm in this place, but it's not going to last forever. What can I do to help me get out of it? Um, and so, yeah, again, being really intentional about what can I do, what will help, you know, is ordering takeout for the fifth time in a row going to be better for me or worse? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just sort of making those calculated decisions. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take to, to kind of come out of that? Um, it was really bad, probably for about four weeks. And then I was coming out of it for, I want to say two months, two and a half months or so, where, you know, it was, it was still bad, but better. Mm -hmm. Okay. What types of things have helped for you? For me, having pets, <laughs> um, first of all, like when, when I was younger and didn't have the um, comprehension of my mental health like I do now, it was literally have something to take care of so that you cannot kill yourself. Mm. Um, and, you know, because again, I'm a fairly reliable, responsible person. I wasn't going to go adopt an animal and then just kill myself because, you know, that was, uh, you know, mean to the, <laughs> to the animal. Um, and that was literally like a trick <laughs> I used to, to keep myself alive. Mm -hmm. um, um, and at this grown up more knowledgeable about myself age it was really just giving myself permission I find that's 
is it's like quicksand you know the more you struggle the more you're going to sink into it so you have to relax a little bit which is really weird to think about when you're talking about depression because like all people sort of see is you lying down (laughs) whereas like you have to like uh, for myself um, I had to tell myself like it's okay you know things are, are going to be okay you've gone through depressions before you know and uh and that sort of thing um eventually when I was like mostly already out of it uh I I saw my family doctor um my or my general practitioner who I've been with since I was like 20 I think and she's uh, amazing um and I was telling her about the depression and everything and she was like you know oh why didn't you call me and it was like it literally never occurred to me you know that's what depression does it just cuts everything off um and not in like a mode of trying to to rectify or solve problem solve or something that's (laughs) it is yeah exactly um but yeah that's yeah like I said just being kind to I don't even like saying be kind to myself but um understanding what I need and making um my existence a safer place Mm -hmm. um whether that's you know like where my thoughts are going um or you know being in my home like my home is my favorite place in the world because it's just so safe and everything every part of it are just things that bring me joy and um and that sort of thing so I just focused on those uh and focusing on just the little things like you know my my pets will occasionally do ridiculous things and having that little chuckle you know is so good and you're fostering a bunch of pets right Yes. So right now in my house, there are 13 cats, um, my own cat Rover. And then I brought in two uh, cats who are pregnant and they've both since given birth. And so right now I'm just surrounded by these like two and three week old little lumps of adorableness. And they're just starting to turn into like that cuteness like you know before they were like babies and like kind of wormy and a little bit alien but now they're getting fluffy (laughs) and yeah I'm really excited for you know just the next like what is it going to be like seven or eight weeks of you know right now they don't do anything they just lie there um but eventually they're going to start moving and then they're going to start being like kittens who get into stuff and I feel like that's just going to be a rocking and rolling time (laughs) no kidding I'm always like who are these like angelic beings who like to agree to foster animals and stuff because it seems like you're doing all the heavy lifting you know you're not in this place of like you know when you finally get to a point where your animal like everything is just working and you know yeah um it's it's been an interesting journey. I started being a foster because of COVID. You know, I was like finally like at home. Um, I had never gotten a dog because I didn't feel like even as much as I am at home, uh, I, I didn't feel I had enough to to give to a dog. 
Um, they require a lot of energy, um, which as we've spoken is not always <laughs> a thing I have. Um, but I started fostering because you know, eventually that dog goes away and gets adopted and then I can have a breather and, you know, it, it's only, I'm only being a dog owner for a short period of time. And before it gets just too exhausting and harmful for me, um, they get adopted and I get to be happy for them. And while they're here, I get to be happy about, you know, being with the dog and going to the dog park and, um, especially seeing them grow, uh, you know, when they're fosters, they're not necessarily coming from the best place. So being able to see like that confidence growing in them, uh, again, it's just a really good thing for my heart. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> mm. <laughs> just imagine the mayhem and like all the havoc they would probably cause. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be. It's, uh, it, it's interesting for sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I have this other little question in my brain. It was back when you were sharing about how you and your mom literally just had this conversation, like within the last two months. Um, and it was the first time you ever talked about the past or emotion or like something really deep. Um, did you initiate that or did she, or how did that come to be? So it, it had actually been a thing I had been thinking about for a number of years, um, to the point that, you know, I considered, you know, maybe for my last birthday, I'll just tell her, you know, I just want to have lunch with you and just talk about everything, you know, that could be your birthday present to me. <laughs> um, and then I chickened out. Um, and so it wasn't a planned, um, thing. It, so it had always been in the back of my mind, but, uh, I just, I had gone to her house one day, uh, well, um, my, cat at the time was at the vet um so I was just waiting and she lived close by so I was just there and I don't even I can't tell you how it started um but you know one of us said something that was you know maybe like family related and then I just sort of asked a slightly probing question and then we just sort of like kept going and it was very sort of um, tentative. Mm. Um, and I, I, just, I appreciated it so much, um, but I also was cognizant of the harm it might be doing to her. Mm. So I didn't want to like push really, really hard. Um, so, it, so it was just, you know, I would ask a question and then I would ask another question. Um, yeah. And then did it just sort of like naturally wrap up or was like, um, I got a call from the vet and my oh. cat was ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and actually I'll, I will say, uh, like I got a call from the vet and when I hung up, I was like, Oh, you know, we just started having this really good conversation. And she was like, you don't have to go right back to the vet, like right now. So we actually did stay for about like a half hour, just sort of like continuing to talk. And I think we actually st started talking about more vulnerable things then because there was like that, that finite end <laughs> in the distance. That yes, we could... exactly. You could always pull the like, a, well, I better go card. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think you will continue to have more vulnerable conversations? I think so. Um, but it would, it will take like effort to do so because we're very comfortable just sliding back into our surface level conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, we're very often not alone, just the two of us, you know, we're at like family events or big dinners, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so there's less, less room for it. Although I have been making a point to like try and, and bring those conversations into our larger family gatherings um, just to, sort of provide an example to um, my my brother's children um, Mm -hmm. to sort of be what I wish I had had um, Um, when I was their age, um, talking about depression as if it's not scandalous mm -hmm. um, and just sort of like, you know, raising those emotional conversations as Mm -hmm. general dinner table talk. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, if if it's there, then it should be spoken to because otherwise then, you know, later on people are like, what was all that? And, you know, we had all this stuff in our family and nobody ever talked about it. Yeah. yeah, And I tried to be really deliberate about it because um, my nibbling um, was at the age, uh, teenagerhood and um, was having a rough time. Um, And I was seeing some of the same behaviors and um, attitudes, I guess, as what I used to do when I was that age. And so I wanted to give them as much as I possibly could so that they didn't have to, you know, wait until they were almost 40 years old (laughs) to to have these epiphanies. And I really focused on um, the sort of, uh, so I I consider sort of like the neuropaths of depression, sort of like I've I've been this way for so long that it's much, much harder for me to get out of it. Whereas Mm -hmm. with my nibbling, you know, it's been, you know, who knows, a few months or a couple of years or whatever. So getting out of it at that age is just so much easier. Yes. And so I wanted to have those conversations. I wanted to um, encourage their parents to take them to therapy, um, you know, and just give what I didn't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From like a neurological pathway kind of perspective too, that's Mm -hmm. really true, right? Like, you get yeah. those ruts and it's a lot harder to get out of them yeah for sure mm-hmm. um I don't know I can't really think of anything else that's kind of like a, a question that I that's coming to me or that I wanted to ask you but was there other things that you that you feel are like part of your story that are critical to speak to about depression or um I will say that even with depression, I I really have to sort of consider myself an optimist, which I don't think people necessarily put 
together. Um, for myself, it's sort of like, you know, as well as taking care of animals, um, the fear of missing out helped to keep me alive. Um, the fear of what if something changes? What if there's a brilliant new treatment? Uh, you know, what if life gets better? And so I feel like that's the epitome of optimism. That's, <laughs> you know, just that hope for something better. Yeah. Um, and I, I think about that a lot. And I am, uh, I'm starting to think a lot about um, sort of the alternative treatments like the, the ayahuasca um, that I spoke about, or even the, um, oh, what are they called? Silobins. Oh, psilocybin? Yes, I can never say that. Um, <laughs> you know, just all of those different treatments that are coming up and the, the understanding that we know nothing about the brain and it would be kind of cool to find out more. Yeah, okay, so you have an interest in psychedelic therapy then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have an interest in anything that might, you know, benefit me. I, I love thinking about how things work. Um, I really enjoy, especially uh, that about like people or, or animals, you know, figuring out, like seeing the connections they make and how that affects their behavior. Um, and being able to like get to that point where I can almost, um, you know, predict what they're going to do because I have a better understanding of how they work and getting to experience that for myself in terms of, of trying something new that makes me understand something more about myself is really intriguing. Mm -hmm. um... I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that dream catcher hanging right there? Um, oh, yep, there it is. That's, that's actually an ayahuasca dream catcher. Oh, okay. The, the root is made of uh, the root that's used in ayahuasca. Right. Um, but would you just want to do like the psychedelic therapy that's supported through like where you do the pre-therapy, the therapy, um, psychedelics with the therapist and then the post sessions and like the whole big shenanigans or or would it be more like a ceremonial traditional context or either I would definitely want to do like the ceremonial um not just because it I'm wrestling with the um, the thought of it helping me and also the thought that it's cultural appropriation. Um, and so like, I don't want to just like take what they've, you know, what these people have been doing for centuries and do it in a sterile white room sort of thing. I, I would want to like go and honor their traditions and uh, help their, you know, economy um, and, you know, be really respectful while also trying to help myself. Um, being able to do that in, um, in tandem with therapy, I think would be amazing. Um, it's really hard to get therapy <laughs> because it's really expensive and okay. the free stuff is not always the most you helpful. You, you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah so you know it's a it's an idea (laughs) that's cool not that I'm saying you know the free therapies that are um, available right now are worthless because they have helped me a lot too you know I've gone through some like group therapies through um, the Royal Alex and um, they have been really enlightening Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no it's definitely an issue like <laughs> amount of therapy and like yeah just the tendency of you're not going to get like this really in-depth therapy from these like kind of limited session packages or like you know the one yeah drop in one session therapy and stuff like that right mm-hmm. yeah. well that's cool about the the uh, psychedelic therapy I'm really interested in that as well I'd love to get training in that one day mm-hmm um but yeah no it's definitely yeah can be a very powerful experience for sure yeah yeah um it's it's hard though because I've heard um like you really have to give up that control in order to experience it and I have never let go of control in my life (laughs) so (laughs) figuring out how to do that uh that's something I'm still sort of like rolling around in my brain. I agree with that a hundred percent. I feel like ayahuasca is something where you just have to trust. You have to trust that medicine, that entity that I say her, I'm saying personifying her as a female feminine sort of essence, but um, yeah, you have to trust her and just Mm -hmm. know that whatever you receive and go through is going to be exactly perfect so yes mm-hmm. there is a relinquishing control and <laughs> <for sure. laughs> not not even just that but um the vomiting in front of people um the the absolutely like l- losing uh, yourself like I don't you know you've seen me at parties and that sort of thing I I, I tend to be pretty tight <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what that is yeah I hear you I hear you but when when you're on psychedelics though like the vomit is like (laughs) (laughs) right yeah (laughs) maybe I need to start with some like baby psychedelics (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have an affinity for psychedelics but that's not everybody's journey right that's not going to be everybody's you know comfort zone either some people get really like they leave their mundane reality and it's just like terrifying to be in mm-hmm. some reality where they don't have you know control or don't know what's going on there or whatever right so mm-hmm. it's not just like a good idea for just anybody to to do something they're not ready to do or yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool yeah that's um, where I'm at now <laughs> <laughs> very cool so anything else you want to kind of add or explain or share or No, I think we we covered a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's things that we didn't talk about, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to talk to you for like 48 hours. That's <laughs> that's a bit much. I need more, I need more. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do have like follow up questions or or anything like that, I'm totally open for that. Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, with kind of you know the podcast journey, it's always it just feels like you kind of go down and then you come up and there's this feeling of like, okay, I think we did it. I think we did the journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Great. Well, I guess we'll wrap up then. Um, just want to thank you for giving me your time in, in light of what you shared about being very deliberate about how you spend your precious unit of energy that makes me feel kind of special in a way like okay well you're willing to willing to do this with me that's um really appreciate it yeah absolutely and uh you know it, there is def definitely that intentionality behind it um I did ask myself is this something that's going to benefit uh me or um fill my cup versus deplete my cup um and like I said, it's just so important to me to to talk about this stuff um, and and share. So yeah. yeah. Great, great. Well, I really appreciate it. And um I've definitely have some new things to think about and things that you explained. Oh, I'm like, it's just it's so you can't be reject like I can't be reductionistic with any one thing like we use a word to describe a thing because like it's got this set of symptoms or you know mm -hmm. like trying to use language to describe something that is maybe shared right but it's not it's, it's all very nuanced like every person has these unique expressions and they're it's complex like there's it's not just like oh this one thing um, no absolutely and I think that's a really good point um, I, I've, especially now that I'm working within sort of the, the disability um, community, really understanding like, you know, the, the conversation about something like autism, you know, there's spectrums and, you know, it's not necessarily something wrong, it's just something different. And I think about that with depression and anxiety as well. It's not that there's something inherently wrong with me there's just ways that I am and you just have to you know the world's not necessarily built for my experience but yeah. that's yeah <laughs> that's the real yeah. problem, actually <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely and I was listening to this podcast with Michael Mead on it and he was talking about how genius is this um thing that like I guess the etymology um, or the etymological roots of it or something like that is like that genius means that everybody has something within them that is their special, unique gift and offering to the world that is their genius. Not that genius means you're like intelligent according to the, you know, IQ or whatever, but that genius is something that is, is like your unique gift and talent and offering to the world and I think that's totally true like that everybody Absolutely. has unique there's something in them that's genius and also like um we all have our different versions of like neuroses or like <laughs> that we can't do that society wants us to do and all of that so mm -hmm. there just isn't the the room for that all the all of the time right because it's yet well <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> see there's my optimism <laughs> why shouldn't there be it's just that industrial complex of like work and you know mm -hmm. money well, and about um you know the, like those uh, facilities or even cities that are catered to um folks with dementia um yes, yes. It, it's changing the world to adapt to them and you know, that's something that 
I think we could get to for everyone if the world doesn't end first. Um, it's really a toss up. Totally. Well, I think like, that's why I'm always like obsessed. I always go back to like the whole tribal society attachment based culture example thing where I'm like, our society is just like messed up, but in a tribal society, that's what would happen. Mm -hmm. Every person would be included because they are needed for survival. And what do you, you know, you're not just going to like abandon a, a member of your own community, like worst case scenario, people would be ostracized or something. Mm -hmm. something like extremely taboo or you know breaking the social contract or whatever but you know they'd try to make it work and bring the person into the fold and heal it and resolve the conflict or whatever before that right but like it would just be a natural answer like who what's this mm -hmm. person's gift okay well what should they do okay well this is what they can do this is what they're supposed to do this is obviously what they want to do <laughs> and it would just happen I feel like mm. it actually like doesn't have to be so complicated but we're just kind of like divorced from those little communities where there's this space and belonging for each individual like it's just a given mm -hmm. we're going to make it work for you um well everyone's just going to make it work we're all going to make it work together right as our unique selves not yeah. just like putting people off on you know like well you don't fit the mold so therefore like just go you know go do nothing and collect this like horribly awful little small amount of poverty income and like try to make that work yeah 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 totally yeah <laughs> well thank you so much for this yeah. conversation <laughs> thank you thank you so much um so i'm going to stop the recording here and if you can just hang on a moment. I'll just sure. say more words to you after we're done here. So thank you again, Jamie. Um, it's been enlightening and it's good to get to know you a little bit better too. Thank you. You too.